Welcome back to the latest edition of the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague from the Athletic, Stuart Mandel. Uh, a little later on, we're going to be joined by our guy on Notre Dame, Pete Sampson, to break down everything that's going on around the Irish right now. It is a very interesting time if you're a Notre Dame fan. Uh, we're also going to get into your questions in the mailbag. Stu, I wanted to ask you, so this past weekend wasn't just NBA All-Star weekend, but it was also the debut or the re-debut of the XFL now that The Rock is behind it. Did you watch any of it? No. Spring football has never really done it for me. These, not spring football for college, but these spring pro leagues have never really interested me. But I could tell on Twitter that people are watching it, and I assume you were. I was, yeah. I mean, there's definitely some recognizable names. A.J. McCarron, among them, uh, was playing. I thought um, one thing that kind of definitely landed well with me was, so McCarron's team was down, I think they, they were down nine at one point. And so in this, in this league, they have, you can not only go for a two-point play, you can go for a three-point play. So they move the ball back basically to the 10. And so they scored and then had a um, got a three point play, got closer. And then all of a sudden, you know, the game narrowed, but then they needed to get the ball back. I think they were down at that point uh, still trailing. And what happened was instead of going for the traditional onside kick, you get a fourth and 15 situation deep in your own territory. And then if you happen to convert it, which they did, um then you know clock's running so you gotta go i think they had like a minute left and it made for a very very entertaining finish and one thing and i would say this as somebody who didn't did not have anything vested in the game not, not just not betting it but certainly not like i didn't care really who won the game and i was thinking back to this the ending of the super bowl where it felt a little anticlimactic as somebody who wasn't you know i was kind of rooting for the eagles but didn't really have much invested in it that last minute where they're just bleeding the clock down, you're going to set up for the game-winning field goal. Here is this, this adrenaline rush of, wow, they have the chance to make what seemingly before was a comeback that you couldn't make just because of the way the clock set up unless you have the fluky onside kick. Here, fourth and 15, you know, I think they had a 17-yard pass on the, to get the first down and then the rolling. Um it was very entertaining. I'm not, I don't know if how I'd feel if college went to it. Would it feel like too much of an outlier? Um, I know that just this past week there was reports of some new clock rules coming in. They would not be as certainly as radical as that. But I felt like for this game, I like it. Well, the college clock rules aren't don't, not necessarily intended for entertainment purposes. They're intended to shorten the games because that is a obviously common a common fan complaint that the games are getting too long, but also just from a health a player safety issue and how many plays are being run. I, I saw the uh, the proposals that were out there. Three of them seem perfectly reasonable, um, including not stopping the clock on after every first down, which I've frankly never really understood why college does that. The NFL doesn't do that. Um, the most controversial one would be not stopping the clock after incomplete passes, which would dramatically cut down the, the number of plays. And I think at some point you do have to be, well, I certainly get the safety part of it. Like every one of those changes favors the defense. So at some point you have to kind of take into account, like, are we shifting this too far in the other direction? You know who I immediately thought of? Our guy, Brian Ferentz. How's he going to get to 25 points a game if they – Shave nine plays, shave nine plays a game off of it. It's definitely not helping. I have a, a buddy who's no longer in coaching, but he was a small school defensive coordinator, and he was one of the first people to really hammer home to me about how many plays you run and you know why the defensive guys are so in favor of it and everything like and how that really works, whether you want to call it complimentary football or not under that umbrella. Um, what's interesting in the safety issue? I had a conversation with Todd Berry, who's you know heads the AFCA very you know recently we talked about this and it was about from a safety issue he said what they have found is a lot of times there's way more injuries early in the season than late um when you think of like an accumulation of things um and i'm sure there's all sorts of theories on why that is um but what some of the rules are because obviously now you're adding more games to the season in terms of at least with the playoff so some of the rules seem to be at 
some of the rule implementation seems to be a little at odds with some of the other things they're trying to put in for maybe for money purposes. So right. um, the one thing I will say is you see a lot of people say, if you want to shorten the games, less commercial breaks, that's, that's never going to happen. Um, if you want your school to get all the riches from your $1 billion TV deal, they do have to make that money back somehow. And uh, that is by selling advertisements. Would you like to see the fourth and 15 rule in the, in college football? Uh, I, I don't know. I think it w- I would be better able to answer this question if I actually watched it. Like, I'm not quite understanding w- why this was so exciting, but you certainly seem like you were. Well, I just think it's like, whatever the percent chance of an onside kick is a 10%. I don't know. But the idea of sitting there, okay, you have your quarterback and he has a G, you have momentum certainly on your side now. Like this to me did not feel like we're deciding a game on penalty kicks in soccer or something. It felt a little different. Again, I had nothing invested in it. So if I was the team, you know, in the K, you know, it just, it just was really interesting for me. I don't know. Again, it, it made it more interesting and uh, I don't know how I would feel if they tried to put that rule in. Like I, I remembered when they first put the overtime rule in, and I feel like having covered high school football in in, in Florida, I remember it was referred to like the Kansas tiebreaker, you know, like capital key, capital T. And we've adjusted to it. I don't know if we love it, but, you know, we kind of adjusted to it at that point. And then there's been t- certainly big tweaks that have been made. Right I think the, the two-point derby is ridiculous. I, I – <laughs> That's not, I mean, that's not a great way to decide a football game. I don't, I mean, the, it was one thing if it gets to like five, six, seven overtimes, but to do it as early as they are now, like that, that ridiculous Penn State, Illinois game comes to mind, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know why they, that, why they don't, the, the thing I never understood about in the first place was if you want to make it, you know, less chance of it going into more overtimes, why do you, why don't you just start the ball further back than the twenty five? Like well, then you'd probably automatically, but then you'd have more play potentially. True. It's just that right now, when it's at 25, you're basically starting. If you have a decent field goal kicker, you're starting from the point of just, you're going to score points. You make it a little bit like oftentimes by the time they get to overtime, right? How many games do you watch where like the defense is just done? They're just done for it's, you know, as soon as the team takes over, what's one play 25 yard touchdown make it a little bit, give the defense a little bit more of a chance. I do think if you have less, um, if you, if you have the running clock, there would be less plays. And then you're also talking about maybe it gives you more slack on the back end. So you don't have to do what you just said and you can wait till maybe the fifth overtime to do it. Yeah, maybe so. So we wanted to bring, we wanted to have a little bit of talk about Notre Dame football today. They've been in the news recently. Um, so and we have the good fortune of having uh, the most authoritative voice on the Notre Dame beat on our staff. So let's bring on our friend Pete Sampson. Okay, Stu, we are now pleased to be joined by our guest. He is the leading authority on all things Notre Dame, the athletics Pete Sampson. Pete, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be with you guys. A lot going on out here in South Bend. There is a lot going on. So we really wanted to have you on. I'm sure we had you on last year to talk about the transition of going from Brian Kelly to Marcus Freeman and all that that entailed. There's a lot more transition going on in South Bend. And that program has been in the news as it's got several coaching searches that have unfolded. Um, I think the thing I wanted to touch on first, though, they just had their press conference yesterday to announce Gerard Parker as the new AD gets as the new as the new new offense coordinator gets promoted from tight ends coach. Uh, one of the things that came up in there was it was no secret that Andy Ludwig from Utah had come to Notre Dame and looked at the job and they looked at him and he got on the plane and was seen at a, at a Notre Dame hockey game and ended up leaving without the job. They said that, you know, it was been reported that his buyout, which was rather high, was not a factor. What do we what are we to read from from this situation? I think that it was a process failure from Notre Dame's point of view of like get, making sure you have all your due diligence done before Andy Ludwig 
comes out as a as a formal inter- interview candidate to make sure you have sort of all that bio information because once he gets here and it's a very sort of public interview that's where okay you got to be ready to make a full offer and i think notre dame was sort of still working through that process at that point um you know, when you talk to people around Notre Dame, it's hard to get a straight answer about whether there was a formal offer or not. Some people will say there was not. Marcus Freeman said yesterday that, you know, Ludwig chose to stay at Utah as Colin Klein chose to stay at Kansas State. Um, so I think it was, um, you know, as Marcus Freeman is kind of going through the, the head coach process, this is, a real, this is his first real offensive coordinator hire because Tommy Reese, he inherited um, – not that he had any issue with inheriting Tommy Reese, but um, you know this hire was sort of viewed early on as like the biggest hire of Marcus Freeman's tenure at Notre Dame, however long that goes. And you know, play calling experience would be at a real premium. Which you know, as you sort of look at these hires, that's actually very hard to find. But Ludwig had it with twenty six seasons at Utah, so I think that uh, in terms of the buyout, what Notre Dame was willing to pay, what they weren't, uh, Marcus Freeman didn't leave much wiggle room that Notre Dame was going to back him, uh, which I think coming out of Ludwig's interview, that was, that was sort of one of my big questions about like how much backing does he actually have? Yeah. I mean, the initial, obviously initial reaction last week was they weren't willing to pay 2.8 million. They, you know, there was um, suggestions that they wanted to try to negotiate it down. And then of course that led to people like myself writing, well, they, they're not willing to play the game, right? You know, that is a very, very high buyout for an OC. Um, but if it were an SEC school, they would just pay it. If that's the guy he wants, that's the guy he wants. Are we, wait a minute. Wait, like, can we pump the brakes on that for a second? This is not for a head coach. We're talking about almost $3 million for a coordinator. Oh, it's extremely high. There's I no question about it. Given that, like, because I would say this, USC had an offensive line coach that Lincoln Riley wanted to hire. His buyout was not that. It was not as much as that. That ended up becoming something where they did not do the hire. And USC, That's USC. USC definitely throws money around those. Two. If Nick Saban wanted to, wanted an OC and they needed to pay two point eight million for it, they would pay it. I mean, but it sounds like that might not even be as the version of events has unfolded that it wasn't as simple as that. Maybe. Yeah, I, I think it was. There was there are more layers to it than just here's the number check yes if you want to pay it check no if you don't um i think figuring out what the number was in the first place was complicated for notre dame so that that sort of muddles the issue a little bit i mean sorbrick came out uh with a letter to fans who had like flooded his email box a little bit last week and you know pointed out that notre dame has ranks in the top 10 nationally in assistant coaching salaries which i mean i've written that quite a bit at the athletic in the last four and a half years that the, there is a myth that Notre Dame doesn't compensate its assistance at market value. Um, I think since Mike Elko was a one and done here to go to Texas A&M, Notre Dame has really matured in that realm, whether it's talking to people at Notre Dame or talking to agents or talking to coaches. So um, I think Notre Dame does sort of definitely backs its football program, backs its head coach that way. But um, I think just the public nature of their interview process with Ludwig kind of turned the temperature up on this to a point where, um, you know, that once confusion set in about the actual buyout number, things got, I think, a little bit sideways with Notre Dame. So they, and then, so he ended up uh, promoting his tight ends coach. Um, and he does have a little bit of OC experience at West Virginia, 2020, 2021. Um, you wrote in the athletic about kind of the backstory there of when, he and, and Freeman work together at Purdue, but um, it just seems like the perception now is they had to settle for their, he had to settle for his third choice. Yeah. I think that, I mean, it is the perception. Uh, we've spent a little bit of time with Jared Parker over the last year when he's come in for interviews, like he's engaging guy. Um, I know talking to players and people around players during the season, uh, the tight end room at least thought very, very highly of him. Um, and I think, you know, how that extends to an entire offense, we will see. Um, he's much more sort of blue collar than maybe Tommy Reese was. Um, so it's definitely a different personality. I think that, um, you know, the first choice, second choice, third choice, it was interesting. I mean, Parker was in on the interview with Ludwig. When you look at shots of from that hockey game the other night, um, 
there's Marcus Freeman, and then Andy Ludwig is to his right and to the right of Andy Ludwig is Jared Parker. So it's not uh, – Parker sort of talked yesterday about, you know, look, my, I'm here to serve Notre Dame and serve Marcus Freeman, um, but I was sure as hell going to be ready if my number got called, and it was. So I think ultimately it's Notre Dame and Marcus Freeman hiring somebody that he had absolute faith and, and trust and loyalty in, uh, and I think that – you know, would if Ludwig had said yes and the buyout was there, yeah, I think he'd be Notre Dame's OC, but that's not what happened. And you know, I think at some point Marcus Freeman had to make a decision to go with somebody he could have absolute faith in and knew he would sort of carry out his vision of what he wanted the program to be. Can we take a step back, maybe the thirty thousand foot view of, of the Marcus Freeman run right now? Because when he took over, um, in some ways it was a little bit of a the, that Oklahoma State bowl game was a microcosm of everything. Fast start, a lot of buzz, and then all of a sudden the air comes out of the balloon. Uh, like I thought they, they acquitted themselves pretty well in the opener against Ohio state. I expect them to get, you know, blown out of that game and they were really competitive. I did not expect them to lose to Marshall or some of the other stuff. And then it's felt like they got their footing again. They had some nice wins down the stretch. Uh, we've, you know, by all accounts, recruiting is doing well. Um, but then you lose some key cogs that, that I feel like were very comforting to Notre Dame fans. Like, what does this fan base and what do people maybe close to the program feel like? Are they less confident? Are they more confident? Are they taking a wait and see approach? I mean, it felt like to me that Brian Kelly was able to make them very good. He was not able to make them great. And in order to make them great, you need to recruit better, you know, and everything that that entails. Getting Sam Hartman, I think, is a big plus for them, right? But oh yeah, like looking at this team now, it felt like they were tight ends aside. It felt like they were very undermanned skill wise, inexperienced quarterback last year, just a thin receiver room, and then injuries and and you know not great running backs. So what do we what do we see from them? What do you feel like from this team in this program now? Well, I, th- I mean, I think they definitely have great running backs. Um, I mean, that's a at least they're top two with Audric Estime and Logan Diggs. You know, their offensive tackles are both pros. Um, with Hartman in there, that changes the dynamic. I think, But I think the fan base, their perception of Freeman is still optimistic. Um, I don't think it's over the top, like this guy is going to be the one who breaks a 35-year wait for a national championship um, this season. But, I mean, Freeman is – I. Notre Dame fans have waited for a head coach who sort of embraced the uniqueness and peculiarities and idiosyncrasies of Notre Dame. Because Brian Kelly didn't really do that. Charlie Weiss didn't really do that. Willingham, Davey, et cetera. Um, Freeman has. Um, he's really thrown himself into Notre Dame, which buys you a lot of goodwill. I mean, so much goodwill that even after losing to Marshall and that complete face planning at Stanford, people still had his back. Um and you're right, the way they finished six wins in their last seven games, the Clemson performance was outstanding. Um, I think it's it's an optimistic wait-and-see approach, um, but I think more than anything, after the last month where Tommy Reese leaves, Harry Heastan leaves, those were really links to the Brian Kelly era. Um, this program is more Marcus Freeman's than it's ever been, um, and so we'll see what that looks like in the fall, but... Um, there's no real connection anymore to the previous administration in terms of the coaching staff. And I think that that's going to be a big point of departure this season about how Freeman runs Notre Dame without sort of some of these holdovers from the last staff. I really find it interesting. The, the kind of spectrum of opinions about Tommy Reese, uh, <laughs> when he, when he d- opted to stay instead of following Brian Kelly to LSU, I got the sense that was a, a great source of celebration among Notre Dame fans. How much of that was because he's a great offense coordinator versus just he didn't go with that traitor? I don't know. Then things... I can tell you, it's very much the he didn't go with Brian Kelly. Okay, okay. I was going to say, because then the season didn't start so great, and I'm looking at the comments of your articles, and it's just a Tommy Reese, like, tee off on Tommy Reese fest. And But then he ends up leaving, after all, and there now there's a bit of, uh, you know, I think in particular because he went to Alabama, that's two years in a row 
where you lose a guy, you, you know, you're Notre Dame, you consider yourself one of the best programs in the country. And that's two years in a row. You've lost a guy to the sec. Was that, a, you know, amongst the spectrum, was that like a, uh, an Oh no moment or, well, we can do better than that guy anyway. I, you know, it was a mixture. I've been writing for, geez, like three years about Reese's skills as a play caller because I always felt like he was undervalued by Notre Dame's fan base. And I would get all sorts of pushback about like the, the plays that didn't work or like they had a face plant offensively against Stanford. I don't, they did not have elite quarterback play the last two years. Uh, the best quarterback that Reese coached was Ian Book. And like, I get it. Reese is in charge of stocking the quarterback room. He's the reason those court, like Notre Dame had to go to Jack Cohn and the reason they had to go to Tyler Buckner and Drew Pine. But when Nick Saban hires you away, I don't, if that's not going to validate you as a coach to a fan base, I don't, nothing ever will. So I think that was a moment where Notre Dame fans were like, all right, fine. Maybe he was really good because <laughs> Nick Saban knows what the heck he's talking about. But I think, I mean, Reese is complicated because people remember him as a player and they think about what he wasn't. He wasn't a big arm. He wasn't mobile, um, you know, didn't show a ton of personality. Uh, people were just ready to move on to the next quarterback who could be the next big thing. And then as a coach, you're, okay, why are you playing Ian Book instead of Phil Dracovic? It's It was almost like they were watching Tommy Reese, the coach, coach Tommy Reese, the player again. Um, I think that brought up some angst there, but... I mean, look, as a play caller, I thought he was outstanding. As a recruiter, I think he's good. Um, but who the hell cares what I think? Because if Nick Saban thinks you're those things, then then you are. I mean, that's, that is gospel. One of the things people who are defending him was, were saying is, yeah, you know, his offenses weren't ranked that high. But he also didn't have, you know, Tua or Bryce Young or, or Jamison Williams. And that's true. Um, but it does raise the question, you know, I just pulled up a list of, you know, Notre Dame in the draft recently. Notre Dame gets a lot of players in the NFL, but they tend to be predominantly uh, defensive players and offensive linemen. And you would end. think and yeah, tight ends, of tight course, end. definitely tight ends, not quarterbacks. Yes, Ian Book did get drafted in the fourth round, but it just seems like in this day and age, you would think just by blind luck at some point, their own, I won't say Caleb Williams, but their own, uh, CJ Stroud or somebody would just come through the building. Like, why has that? And and two, also not a lot of high end receivers. Like, why has it been so hard for Notre Dame to recruit those positions? They did not have a great recruiting staff at wide receiver under Brian Kelly. I thought that they, frankly, they had some bad evaluations and were lazy about it. Um, that definitely changed with Chancey Stuckey under Marcus Freeman. But, I mean, the the quarterback mistakes that they've made, I feel like there's been some bad evaluations, um, you know, and that was consistent really from the start of Brian Kelly to the end of Brian Kelly. You know, you would sign a five-star like Gunnar Keel, who would never play um, because he couldn't get ahead of Tommy Reese. Um, Ian Book was always ahead, beat out Brandon Wimbush, who was a top 50 recruit, and kept Phil Dracovic, who was a top 100 recruit on the bench. Those were big-time prospects. So, their evals, I think, were not great, um, and they weren't overly aggressive. Sometimes they they should have taken a, a portal quarterback last year. They needed a Sam Hartman on the roster last year, and I get that would have meant three years in a row of that. But you gotta you gotta sort of enhance that room as best as you can. And I think that they made a tactical error at the start of last off season when they chose not to pursue um, a transfer quarterback. Um, because now I think they have a guy like Sam Hartman. I'm not saying he's going to be a first-round pick. He's not a C.J. Stroud type, but he certainly has more raw ability to the, to the table than any quarterback that Notre Dame has had since Jimmy Clausen. I mean, that's we're going back over more than a decade now. So that was, I mean, that was part of the reason I wanted Reese to stay, just to sort of see how he would operate with a better receiver room and a, a potentially great quarterback. Um, but that will all be uh, – those are assets that Jared Parker can uh, employ now. It's interesting in that, you know, the quarterback is not a position where you'd be like, oh, it's, tar- it's tough to recruit quarterbacks because academically we can't get them in. Usually that is not a concern with that position. And so it's 
been fascinating to see. Now, Buckner was a pretty big recruit, but it's like he was, yeah. he, you know, he played at a small school and, you know, you'd hear stories about how he's just way more physically gifted when he was younger than the kids he was playing against. And then I think there was a, you know, a COVID year in there where there wasn't football. Yeah, right? and he, so it's like he tore his ACL on the fourth play of his sophomore year, missed that. Notre Dame offered him, took him. Uh, and then he played his entire junior year, put up just absurd stats. But I went out and saw him play. Um, I think it was against La Jolla Country Day, and he was bigger than a lot of the offensive and defensive linemen on both teams. So it was just a completely different level of competition. His senior year was lost to COVID. And it's, I mean, that's the, the thing that I, the issue I think Notre Dame fans rightly have with the quarterback recruiting is like you need to sign Tyler Buckner every year not just put all your eggs in the fact that you got them once every two or three years. Um, Cause that might work for Clemson when you go from Trevor Lawrence to what you think is going to be DJ Uingle to Kate Klubnick. Um, but to just take a, a stud quarterback every two years or every three years, I think you're, you're just setting yourself up for if that guy doesn't pan out, you're in deep trouble. Uh, and I don't, we haven't seen enough from Tyler Buckner to know if he's going to be the guy that pans out. Yeah, I'm I'm curious, uh, like looking back, I think you have to go back to either 2013 or 2014 where Notre Dame had like a truly elite, highly ranked recruiting class. I'm not saying they did. They had a bunch under Brian Kelly that were ranked somewhere between like 11 and 15. But then, you know, I guess Marcus had one that was maybe his first one might have been eight or nine. It was because it was ranked near the top for a long time, and then they lost Keon Keeley and Peyton Bowen, five stars at the end. But, yeah, I mean, you're right. The 2013 class that Notre Dame signed, that was Jalen Smith's class. Will Fuller was in that class. Um, I think that was Mike McGlinchey was in that class as well. I mean, that that had some dudes in it. Um, If I'm not mistaken, I thought that might be Malik Zaire's class. It was. Yeah, yeah, he was the quarterback in that class. Um, There was a lot of NFL talent in that class, but that was – that was so far and away better than anything else that Notre Dame had signed. Uh, Max Redfield and Greg Bryant um, were two sort of fringe five-star players that they got that cycle too. Um, so that was they, – they just haven't been able to stack classes like that together. Um, and then when you compare that to Alabama or Georgia where you're signing top five classes every year, not every 10 years, it's it just puts you at a, a natural talent disadvantage. And that's – I mean, that's what Marcus Freeman is – attempting to change right now do you uh, so but do you think that vibe portal aside um is resonating how is it resonating i guess i should ask you this way how is it resonating a year later with this kind of you know you have now a little bit of a track record um you know i still feel like marcus has a i don't even know if it's fair to say a charisma but, you know, he is super photogenic. You know, you can, like, he's probably the rare guy you can pose for a photo with Brady and make Brady look like, <laughs> you know, the average man. Um, <laughs> so, um, but there is there is that. You know, I don't know, how, like, how is it, is, is it still playing well with recruits or are they just like, okay, you know, this may not work out great? I think, I mean, the Marshall and the Stanford games are tough. Um, it's tough to recruit against that. But I do think that, the way that they've recruited, they have CJ Carr committed a year from now um, as sort of a fringe five-star prospect, a quarterback. The, the, chariz- the charisma is real. Um, the photogenics are real. Um, that plays well in recruiting. Um, he's a dynamic, younger personality, and I, he, he commands a room. It's easy to see why players would want to play for him. I do think that the fan base is like, okay, we thought the first class would be better. Um, and if they just held on to Keon Keeley, which look, is a huge if, um, it would have been better. That would have been the third highest rated prospect Notre Dame would have signed in sort of the internet recruiting rankings era after Jimmy Clausen and Jalen Smith. Like that would have changed everything about the perception of that recruiting class. Um, but now I think Notre Dame is sort of back to the table with whether it be NIL or recruiting approach or going after a different caliber of prospects that I think the Notre Dame fan base appreciates Marcus Freeman's willingness to take big swings. Cause I think by the end, Brian Kelly, there was a, okay, we're going to skip the top 50 players and then sort of pick up our recruiting list from there. And that's like, you're never going to get to the mountaintop with 
with that kind of attitude. And I think Marcus Freeman's been really aggressive and intentional about trying to get the best possible players. And, um, you know, if that means losing somebody to Alabama late, then that means losing somebody to Alabama late. Can we end with this? I have a more a broader Notre Dame question for you, philosophical question uh, that, that I get asked a lot in mailbags and whatnot. So Jack Swarbrick was on the four-person committee that devised the 12-team playoff format. And when it came out, a lot of people are like, well, shoot, Notre Dame's going to have to join a conference now because they, in this system, they can never get a first-round bye. They can never be one of the top four seats. And Jack Swarbrick's counter is... Uh, yes, but we uh, we will take that in exchange for six at large berths. What what was his rationale in that, and and can maybe explain to the broader audience why that that the, this new era of college football doesn't necessarily have the effect a lot of, on them. A lot of people thought it would. No, I well, it's like the new era of college football might have an effect on them, but it's it's not in their independence. But it's not going to be because of access to the playoff because that's that's expanded, right? Like six bids are better than essentially really what was two. I know that, you know, cause the sec champion is always going to make it. The big 10 champion is always going to make it. Um, they're willing to trade uh, an extra playoff game for not having to play a conference championship game. I understand all that. Um, I think where Notre Dame has to sort of be sensitive to and aware of where college football is going is just the, the revenues that the sec and the big 10 are generating. Um, if Notre Dame can't get a, a competitive deal from NBC or another media partner moving forward, then how are you going to just sort of stay in the top 10 in compensating your coaches? Um, how are you going to back Marcus Freeman the way that you said that you will, um, if you don't have the revenues for it? So that I think is sort of the more interesting choke point for Notre Dame moving forward, but like access to the playoff, they just needed a chance to get in. I thought they were, they were fine with the 14 playoff. I think when they missed it in 2015, if they had beaten Stanford, uh, I think that was a Christian McCaffrey-Stanford team at the very end, they lost on a last-second field goal. But if they had beaten Stanford that year and finished 11-1, and they would have missed the playoff, and I think they would have been fine with it because they valued independence more. They, they just want a shot to be in. Um, before, they had to be 12-0 and to make it. Now, 11-1 and will make it every year. 10-2 and will make it a lot of years. Um, but they're definitely they're fine playing an extra game at – it's also a home game most years um, to to have access to the playoff. But I think just sort of keeping track of the revenues and how media rights deals are going, that's sort of the next big thing that Swarbrick has to keep an eye on as he, as he figures out how do you keep Notre Dame independent for the long, long haul. They need to get a big, big bump. I think they only make like $15 million a year from their NBC yeah, deal. It's always been sort of like, is it 15 Is it 20 Is it 25 But that's probably going to be pushing – 45, 50. I don't know what their, their magic number is, but it's, you see all these meteorites doubling um, in the last cycle. I think it's fair to say Notre Dame is probably going to have to double that as well. Can I ask you one quick last question? This is probably opening up another can of worms and Stu is going to cringe, but back, you know, this kind of kicked in when, when Stu started talking about the TV deal and I thought about it, I was like, for a long time, lots of people grew up hating Notre Dame. Do you feel like people still hate Notre Dame that much? I feel like they briefly became a lovable team when Brian Kelly left. People felt bad for them. Yeah, I think that uh, th- there's definitely this new group of Notre Dame fans. And like Notre Dame needs to create a new group of fans. Marcus Freeman helps them do that. Um, if you have a young, photogenic head coach, great energy, good charisma, uh, I think his background african-american dad um south korean mom like that's it's a kind of a a new age american story um you know i wrote about that before the ohio state game last year i he is a very likable guy um you know notre dame hasn't had a coach that i think people have wanted to pull for since i don't know era parsegian it's been a long time like i think even lou holtz had a little like at the beginning maybe lou holtz had the personality that people were behind um but then Notre Dame became a little bit more of a villain there but they they just haven't had a coach like this in a while so yeah i I think that the perception of Notre names have changed a little bit um based on our metrics at the athletic people will still read anything about Notre Dame at all all times which i appreciate um but i do think there's 
people want to see Marcus Freeman succeed in a way that there was not that uh, vibe or tone around Brian Kelly uh, from fans of other schools, not even close. Right, Stu. You can you can shoo him off with <laughs> Sandman Sims. There's never, you know, if you've listened to other podcasts, much less, there's never a good way to say goodbye to the guests. But <laughs> this has been a great conversation. I hope, because like you said, I mean, everybody if everybody wants to read every article about Notre Dame, hopefully they want to listen to every podcast discussion about them. Well, I think they came up twice. Uh, I was on uh, Ari and Andy's show, and then they also had two shows also about Notre Dame since. So maybe they're bumping out Brian Ferentz and the 25 points per game is like the big offseason talking <laughs> point. Uh, as uh, always, we would encourage you to follow Pete. He has a tricky Twitter handle. Pete Sampson. Then there's an underscore after the end, correct? There is. Uh, I'm not sure who the original Pete Sampson on Twitter is, but it's definitely not me. We should try to buy him out from it. Yeah. Well, we can talk to our bosses about that. Yeah. All right, Pete. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, guys. Mailbag time. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We start with a frequent emailer, Brian Black in Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, Stu and Bruce. Big fan of the pod. South Carolina finished the 2022 season with top 10 wins against Tennessee and Clemson, South Carolina finished the 2023 recruiting cycle strong by signing five-star athlete Nicholas Harbor and is off to a hot start in 2024 recruiting. Shane Beamer has instilled a lot of optimism in South Carolina, but a significant gap still exists between them and the SEC elite. What is the ceiling for South Carolina under Shane Beamer and what comes first? I like this one. South Carolina making the playoff or Shane Beamer leaving for a bigger job? Ooh, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff here. Um, I like Chan Beamer as an assistant. I've known him since he was actually a player at, at Virginia Tech. He is, and having said that, he has done better to start than I expected he would have. Now, it's not like, you know, he's still, I think he's, now he's seven and nine in SEC play, but he followed a two win season for 
for Will Muschamp, and I think they were four and eight the year before that. So, like for a first-time head coach, I think he's done a really good job. And you know, Nick Harbor, the big recruit he got, is like the most freak freak of freak guys I probably could have. Um, a six-five guy who maybe could be an Olympic sprinter. I mean, there's a there's a lot of reason to be very optimistic if you're a South Carolina fan. Um, I don't know. It still feels to me, Stu, like a huge leap to go from seven, eight wins, even nine wins to get to be a playoff team. Now, we say that we're going to be in a different era soon with this in regards to, you know, probably four SEC teams as opposed to you pretty much got to win the you know division and Georgia's in your division, right? And Tennessee, to credit to Josh Heupel, Tennessee is very formidable now and they have momentum. I don't know what Florida is going to do under Billy Na- and Billy Napier, but you also have Kentucky has been like what what Shane Beamer is is in the process of doing. I feel like Mark Stoops is already kind of like one step ahead of that. You know, he's reached to the ten wins and at a outlier school. Um, I mean, Shane Beamer probably won't like what I'm about to say, but I think there's probably a better chance of him leaving for a bigger job than there is of them making the playoff. But I don't know. You, can, I mean, right now the playoff does. Could they be one of the top four teams in the SEC? Yeah, I don't think it's. I don't. I don't think that's like. It's much more attainable now. Like two things happen. He's done. He's done a little better, or quite a bit better than I thought he was going to do at this point. But also now you're talking about way more opportunity to make the playoff. We're not talking about you have to be one of the four best teams in college football. You just have to be one of the four best teams in the SEC, right? So I'm I'm like workshopping through this. I don't know. I mean, I well, don't this is this. Sorry, this is you know. I know this seems like a million years ago now. But Steve Spurrier had three straight seasons, 2011 to 2012 to 2013, 11 and two each season, top 10 finish in the poll. So it's not like now that is a real aberration over their history. But I mean, that that was a time when they were, you know, they would have made the playoff in those seasons. Two big differences now. Clemson was not nearly what Clemson has become since then. Um, They've kind of owned that rivalry, at least up until last year. And Georgia, um, you know, having basically the new Alabama in their own division feels like it's a bit of a ceiling. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting just to underscore that point. Here are the standings in the SEC SEC East that last year for when they went eleven and two. Kentucky was two and ten. Tennessee, I think this is the Derek Dooley era, was five and seven. Florida was four and eight. Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt. Nine and four. That was James Franklin. Georgia was eight and five. South Carolina, 11 and two. And they didn't even win the division. Missouri, 12 and two. Gosh, those were, that was a different time for the SEC East, wasn't it? Yeah. I, what I, what is, yeah. Yeah. I definitely remember being at the SEC title game. It was Missouri Auburn. I feel like I'm trying to remember who the running back was at Auburn who ran Trey Mason. Was it? Yeah, Trey yeah. Mason, who I was going to say it was like Rudy Johnson, was a fairly undistinguished guy, and then suddenly went on this amazing run towards the end of that season. People, for I think we get very prisoner of the moment with these things. We think like uh, it's always going to be exactly the way it is right now. These things go in cycles, and it may be that South Carolina is about to be on their uh, another upward cycle. I will say the weird, kind of the weird thing though about Beamer's first two seasons is like for two thirds of the season they weren't very good. And then they just exploded at the end. And in fact, last year, um, November 12th, they lose 38 to six at Florida. Not a great Florida team by any means. And then they turn around in the last two weeks, 63, 38 over Tennessee, 31, 30 against Clemson. And then they played Notre Dame tough in the bowl game. So same thing the year before um, they, they just finished real strong. So um, I'll be interested. I'd like to see, I mean, there's no reason why this year's team can't have a more consent. Spencer Rattler's coming back a more consistent season long, you know, a good season. Can I ask you this? Um, so Spencer Rattler is an interesting one to pick up on here. 18 touchdowns, 12, 12 interceptions, 66% completion percentage. Like statistically, 
His arc is interesting because if you look at just I know quarterback rating is a is kind of a dubious thing, but 2020 quarterback rating was 173. Quarterback rating in 2021, 156. Quarterback rating in 2022, 139. So it's gotten actually worse each year. Yep. Um, I feel like his perception kind of leveled off. Um, and we'll see. I would think this would be a better year for him. Second year in the system, second year in the SEC. I mean, do you think maybe the the better question for it, do you think they will be not can be? Do you think they will be a top top twelve team this year? I think that's a that's a bit of a leap. Um, like Spencer Rattler, when he's on, he's on, but he's not on that often anymore. He was that one season at Oklahoma, so it's not like I mean, who who knows? They also lost their OC Marcus Satterfield. It, who knows? Maybe he will put it all together finally. But to be top 12, I think he's going to have to be a lot more consistent. So since you just, can I skip ahead a little bit? You just rattled off some Spencer Rattler stats kind of at a moment's notice. And so we got this question from Kevin Ammons in Charleston, South Carolina. That is like exactly what you just did. Stu and Bruce, frequently you cite obscure statistics like quote 49th in the country in passing or teams averaging more than 25 points per game. Uh, instantaneously what resource are you guys using to gather stats in real time while recording the podcast is it available to everyday fans or just sports writers so give us a real-time example of that you pulled up spencer rattler stats like that okay so for me the the best resource for me and again when i say that this is something anybody can find um cfbstats.com and what i love about it is it is sortable meaning you click to the whatever category you want and it'll show you it doesn't go back 30 years or 20 years it goes back about like 14 years unfortunately about five years ago the nca for god knows what reason shit canned its stats database it was longer ago than that all right maybe seven or eight years ago it used to be really good and then it can became like obsolete and CFB stats is very good um, for me. And I, I think it's one of these things where it's habit. So in the case of the Rattler thing, um, you know, I just went to full disclosure. We don't work for ESPN, but ESPN's stats profile was very easy to search on that. And in a moment's notice, I just went to his player card and it had that there Um you know, like there's certain, um, you know, if you have to look up FCS or Division Two stats, you got to pretty much, I feel like, rely on the NCAs. And it's not a very searchable format for whatever reason. Um, those, are, But CFB stats has been a go-to for me really for the last, you know, six or seven years. You? Yeah, CFB stats is the, is the go-to. Um, if you've ever heard me pull up a stat pretty quickly, it's probably from there. Now, one, one that's been competing with CFB stats for me recently is sportsreference.com. It's a little bit harder to navigate that one, but if you Google, like if, if it had been me and I Googled like Spencer Rattler career stats, that's probably what would have come up and they have everything. Yeah. And it's actually yeah. sports-reference.com. It's, I'm glad you said that because that's actually where I pulled up the 20, um, the 20, 2011 and 2012 sec summaries and i use that site always for going doing the year by year of a team's uh history of how like successful they've been because they have um it's not just very searchable it's also there's a bunch of stuff you can find like where in the case of south carolina where their highest rank during the season was what they finished um it's a really good resource i think yeah so just now actually when when you were talking about what their ceiling is and and do i i just typed in south carolina year by year record that comes up and it's you know exactly what i just described every season in south carolina history record conference record and a ap you know what's the highest they were in the in the poll that year and what did they finish so I think those are probably our two go-tos. I will say I am sometimes dazzled at how quickly you pull things up. Like the Rattler thing just now, I was like, how did you get there already? It is nothing I did other than we have a good internet connection. It's not like I'm back. I, I are you sure like, Ben's not sitting there? At your, he's like your spotter. He's your researcher. 
He's no, just right off. It was, in the- it was funny the other night after our basketball game. His basketball team. They all like the families all went out for you know dinner and so we went to some like kind of outdoor sports bar. And so one of the XFL games is on, and in the score bug, it lists not just who's the favorite but also over under. And so the last, it might have been the AAF. I don't remember which league it was that I had, I, I don't say I had to explain to him like the point spread, but like I, he was like, what is that number? And I was like, well, this is what the number is. I don't know exactly how they determine it for like a first game in a new league, how scientific that can be. But then, so I like, you know, our, our coach um, of the basketball team was at the bar with me and he's sitting there and, and he was like explaining it's kind of showing off what he knows what the over under was. And it just dawned on me, I was like, all right, he could art, you know, very well explain this in like maybe three minutes where I think almost anything school wise, I don't think would be that easy for him. And I was like, mm, I don't know if I'm, I'm proud of that or embarrassed of that, but like, it's just what, you know, certain what kids are into. Like, I mean, you can't tell what your kid is going to be into, but just like, you know, you just, I don't know. Just that's how it's my daughter is really into gymnastics. So I DVR'd um, SUNY Lee's Auburn. I, I watched my first SEC uh, gymnastics match the other night, Auburn versus Missouri. Um, and then I got her into Stanford's women's basketball team. So those are those are her two things right now. I'm, of course, just totally sucked in by this crazy Northwestern uh, basketball run right now where they're suddenly like really good <laughs> it just came out of complete nowhere back to our questions um all right Stu. this question is from gordon cameron in burlington ontario i've been hearing several college football pundits beating the drum that a number of the pac-12 schools in particular arizona asu utah and colorado might be looking at decamping for the big 12 short of the conference imploding due to the loss of Washington and or Oregon or a low TV money deal that Paul put all the best games on a streaming service. No one's ever heard of how likely do you think it is that any PAC 12 schools would leave for a conference other than the big 10 or the sec. And is there an extent to which these rumors are being perpetuated by big 12 fans who felt jilted, but when the PAC 12 turned up its nose at their school, following that their conference's loss of Texas and OU. Bruce, the last seven months or whatever it is since since USC and UCLA left has been one of the most bizarre stories I've tried to cover. Now, realignment is always, you know, a, a perfect fodder for bad reports, misinformation, whatever you want to call it. But in this case of the Pac-12 and the Big 12, there are literally two completely different realities being put out into the world right now. The one he's referring to here where, where the four corner schools are just waiting and they're going to, at any moment, they're going to leave for the big 12 and the PAC 12 will be done is so at odds with what people, actual people in the PAC 12 have been telling me and some of our colleagues uh, this whole time. And as recently as a couple weeks ago, now I, we did report on the athletic that the PAC 12's TV deal is definitely, you know, what they're looking at is definitely falling short of what George Klyovkov was telling people he could get uh, back after USC and UCLA left. Financially, it's going to be a lot closer to what the Big 12 just got than um, what he was talking about back then. And it is also true that it's probably going to be moving predominantly to a streaming service, which no major conference has done to this point. But I have gotten zero sense that those schools are going to join the big 12 but if you but there are so many other outlets that are reporting that this could be right on the brink of happening so somebody's being lied to maybe it's me maybe it's some other reporters we'll find out in a few weeks because i think the the deal will get done uh probably by mid-march and when it does that's when you're if if there's going to be a a raid of the pac-12 that's when it's going to happen um they find out their what their final tv deal is and if the schools think it's we can't make this work. This isn't enough money or we don't want to go to predominantly streaming and the big 12 is an option. That's probably when that would happen, but it would have to be like a really bad deal because they, they want to be part of the, they don't want to, like he said, you know, um, 
they had a chance to join add any of those Big 12 schools they wanted to after Texas and Oklahoma left and thumb their nose at them. So the idea that less than two years later they would want to go those same schools that rejected them would want to go join their conference is not so, something I've struggled to to understand the um, the impetus of. All right, Stu, uh, full disclosure, obviously, since we know I work for Fox, it would be very inappropriate for me to comment on something that Fox potentially has their hands in like this, right? But I do want to ask you something Gordon touched on in there, which I feel like is, I would say, like fair game to kind of broach. And it's the, you know, he referenced the streaming service business. Mm -hmm. Because of college football has not really drifted in there where other things had now, I know that there's been some random games on ESPN Plus and other sports especially, but you are a consumer just like, you know, like I'm not at home on college football Saturday, whereas you usually are. And so you're watching the games just like most of our audience is. Um, how different of a viewing experience, because now you and I both have switched over to YouTube TV like mm -hmm. within the last year and a half and feel like it's been more seamless than I had anticipated it would be. I, we, we jumped over for basically because the company we had was not really very good at, it was just a reliability part of the satellite function or what, not satellite of the, of the non, non um, Wi-Fi aspect of it. But do you think whatever the streaming service is, it would people would just adjust really quickly or there would be some part of it would be like, because so much of college football is because there's so many games on, it's different than the NFL. You are really mm -hmm. struggling it differently. How do, how do you think you would adjust to it? Because I cover the sport and need to watch everything. I would figure it out. I don't think I would be like, let's say the PAC 12 puts, I don't know. I, to be clear, I don't know if this is going to happen, but let's say they are going to put a lot of their best games on Amazon. At least the TV I have and the interface I have, and maybe this is going to change soon. I mean, it takes several steps to get out of YouTube TV and into Amazon's app. It would not be great if you're trying to surf between several different games uh, at once. And that would be a big risk for them. Would they basically become... I mean, I think... Now, remember, they're, they're trying to um, overcome... They're trying to correct the Larry Scott fiasco of the Pac-12 network and their fans, their own fans not going to be able to see their games if they had the wrong provider or lived in the wrong part of the country. If you're a Pac-12 fan, anybody can subscribe to Amazon or Apple or ESPN Plus, wherever these games end up. So that's no longer the issue. But I think you risk losing fans outside the Pac-12. If it were a really huge game, um, and remember, they're going to have a spot in the playoff probably, um, and this was going to determine the playoff spot, you'd probably make an effort to find that. But if you're watching, remember, the Big Ten has made their games even easier to find now because they're going to be on all broadcast networks. You're, yeah, I just can't imagine a, I'm a Big Ten fan or an SEC fan that I'm going to log out of my system to get to some other system to watch just like a run-of-the-mill Pac-12 game. I think that they're banking on that, like, this is the future. It's all headed this way. Um, I have to think the technology is going to improve in terms of making it easier to go back and forth uh, between those apps. You know what I would love? Can somebody out here in Silicon Valley please invent a product where you that's that I will call quote unquote cable, <laughs> where all of your streaming services are on one uh, guide, channel guide, Amazon? Because I'm I have them all now, right? There's a show or something I want to watch on, and like my wife and I will be like. Oh, I heard about this new show. We should watch it. Okay. Which streaming service is it on? I have no idea. I bet you there's a way that, that somebody has already created that and you just don't know about it. I mean, possibly, but Amazon wants you to, like, I don't know what incentive Amazon would have to agree to that. They want you to get in their app and stay in that so, app. Like, yeah. I think if you, if let's say you're the Pac-12, and again, I'm not saying this is in the works, but if they are picking a window that there aren't other games in, it's much more manageable. Yeah, like the NFL just did. Yeah, the NFL Thursday night game. You're not toggling back and forth or trying to. Like, the only – the I thought my frustration with going to streaming and YouTube was going to be that the games would be way behind. Now, there are moments where I'm like, I can't look at Twitter. Or I can't right. 
look at the look at a live box score because it's going to update before my TV does. But it's like you know, it's like ten seconds or fifteen seconds. But the part that has been more frustrating is I don't have a last channel or a back button. There's like a couple. There's like two extra steps that are into that to go back and forth. It's not deal breaker, but I would yeah, that definitely was my frustration when I first got it, but you just get, I'll, I can explain it to you offline if you don't know, but you can, you get used to pretty quickly the way, the way to do it. Um, the delay, like I've definitely had some plays and stuff ruined by usually it's people who are at the game in the press box tweeting. Cause they're so far ahead. Um, also if you have one of those stats casts open, do yeah, not, do not yeah, look at that. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a big bet that they're going to, if they do go predominantly, but I, I don't actually, I mean, Anybody who claims they know what that deal is going to look like, it has been uh, radio silence from the Pac-12 side. Uh, real quick, Jeff Calderwood, Stu and Bruce, during your recent segment on how the new SEC and Big Ten teams stack up on the field in their new conferences, there was a, sus a suspicious omission. A small school from Westwood was absent from your breakdown. Is UCLA a small school? I can't imagine that it is. Bruce's mighty USC needed a heroic performance to take down Chip Squad. Not just your podcast, but the CFB landscape as a whole seems to make similar mistakes. Putting aside USC's current pop star head coach, why do you believe US UCLA is destined for Big Ten anonymity? I don't know if I would say that they are destined for that. I mean, look, right now, I would say this is the highest buzz UCLA has probably had, you know, probably since the beginning of the Josh Rosen era at UCLA because they started to, to backslide, you know, towards, you know, at that point of the Jim Mora era. But it took Chip Kelly a while to get some momentum. And now in the last two years, he definitely has it built it up. And I think because of how they've recruited in the portal, especially like they've been almost as good as anybody in the portal the last few years. And I think this is the best class he signed yet. And I also think, you look at it. I mean, Dante Moore was a was the biggest recruit he has signed out of high school. You know, he's the five star quarterback that everybody wanted. Um, you know, I feel like right now they have they know their identity, and um, you know he's right. Je Jeff is right. I mean, if if not for a really good play by Corey Foreman dropping into coverage to make that pick, you know, UCLA maybe wins that game. I mean, they. They took it to Washington that Friday night, and they're they definitely, um, you know, are a, a very good team. I'm curious to see how they will do in in the Big Ten going forward because they're actually built in terms of like a Big Ten team in terms of they're a big physical team. They like to run the football. In a lot of ways, I think they'll fit very well in there. Um, you know, especially if they keep. Recruiting and look, as I said, Dante Moore was a huge recruit. Dante Moore is plumb in the middle of the Big Ten footprint as a Detroit, Michigan kid. I have a slightly more pessimistic outlook. It's not really specific though to Chip Kelly or, or anything current. I just think they don't care about football enough. Um, it's not a secret, you know. You see all the shots of a three quarters empty Rose Bowl um, unless they're playing uh, USC. Um, that just it's just a very um, but that's but stupid like the pessimistic thing like that didn't matter at Stanford with Jim Harbaugh when Jim Harbaugh started have, took them into a top five team right but they weren't competing in the Big Ten in the Big Ten they're going to be compete UCLA is going to be in a conference with not just Ohio State Michigan Penn State and their hundred thousand seat stadiums Iowa packs their stadium every week Wisconsin packs their stadium every week but you're not playing um, against those fans. Like at the end of the day, I don't think like that. No, I'm that saying I'm not talking about like crowd noise. I'm saying it's a proxy for how passionate is the fan base and how passionate the fan base often has a has a one to one with how invested is the school in the football program. UCLA is going to have to make a much more significant investment than they do now. If that was they the want case, to Miami contend for Big Ten championship. Miami never would have won any national titles. Yeah, well, Miami's been in the dust for 20 years. Like we, the most successful football programs for the most part i'm not saying it's 100 percent are the really have the really really rabid engaged fan bases and now ucla it wasn't always this way i mean i feel like it's just fallen off a cliff since chip got there but um like they i don't 
I didn't necessarily think of them that way when Terry Donahue was the coach or Bob Toledo was the coach, but there's just like a malaise that is set in there and it's going to have to reverse itself in a big way um, for them to compete at a high level in the big 10. I know that UCL USC's fan base can, can be kind of bandwagon at times, but when they have confidence in the coach, which they certainly do now, that's a, that's a big time fan base in a big time environment. I think, you know, you mentioned the Terry Donahue era and that's a long, that's, you know, really before I was even covering the sport as well. But like, I'm pretty sure that people spent way less time tweeting out photos of attendance shots before kickoff <laughs> and everything. I don't think those things, you know, people focused on them at all. No, that's true. And I don't, I can't claim that I, I have no way to quickly look up at attendance figures like I do Spencer Rattler's passing stats, but I do know there have been a lot of Ben Bolt, he's the beat writer for the LA Times, stories and tweets about this record low attendance and that record low attendance. And, you know, when LSU came out there, they had a good crowd. When they play USC, they have a good crowd. But other than that, so look, prove me wrong, UCLA fans. Step up your game. Uh, certainly there's going to be some big, um, I'm sure it's going to be very exciting the first time Ohio State or Michigan comes comes to play at UCLA. Ohio State canceling that series against Washington told me that they must already know that in 2024 they're going to be playing at, and I assume it's USC. So that might mean that Michigan's playing at UCLA. So they'll have that to look forward to. As always, you can send your emails to the audiblepod at gmail.com and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.